You're listening to Wilderness Times, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and justice, brought to you by Resistance Church and Jubilee United Church in Toronto. Hello and welcome to the first episode of our second season of Wilderness Times, released on Wednesday, February 8, 2023. My name is Brianne Swan, and in partnership with Norm Seeley, I am one of the called ministers at Jubilee United Church, an affirming ministry of the United Church of Canada in Toronto. I also serve the Resistance Church community, one of Jubilee's digital ministries. So we've made it to season two. And one of the things that became a bit clearer to me in our first season is how much I wanted to dig a bit deeper with every topic that we only seem to get to touch on. And so we're going to try a bit of a shift with this podcast. Each season is going to center on a specific justice focus and explore it through a faith perspective over multiple weeks. This season we will be focusing on capital punishment, the abolition movement, and how people of faith are advocating for those who are incarcerated and sentenced to die. Many of you listening will know that this is a topic that is very near and dear to me. I am a spiritual advisor to one man on death row and have written and befriended many others. Some of them are still with us, and tragically many have been executed. On today's episode, I had the absolute honor of sitting down to speak with Cantor Michael Zussman, chaplain and founder of Lachaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty. Our conversation was recorded on January 25th, and our Bible Bite segment was recorded outside the former Don Jail, now an administrative building for Bridgepoint Health in Toronto. I will let Michael explain more about Lachaim's founding and advocacy work as we get into the interview, and I will be linking a number of articles referenced in the episode in our show notes at wildernesstimes.ca. But first, first music. This is The Brilliance, and their song, See the Love, from their 2016 album, All Is Not Lost. You can find links to the brilliance and their music by going to our show notes. Every day we go to war again, we assume we know so much more than them. Before we hear what they have to say Headline breaks And we start to hate again Calling them names again We give our peace away I hope they see it Cause I wanna see I hope we believe it I want to see, I want to see the love All around you All around you I want to know, I want to know that love Is all
batei, batei, batei. Hope fades away and then we know that there is pain with us. We cannot medicate. Learn to feel. Learn to begin again. Open our eyes again to see our brother's pain. I hope they see it. Cause I wanna see it. I hope we believe it. I wanna see. Michael, it is so good to have you here on Wilderness Times. I'm just delighted to be able to speak with you um, in real time instead of just sending emails back and forth. It feels like we've been corresponding for a while, but it's nice to actually have the chance to talk. Amen. I, I agree as well. Yeah. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we could start with you talking a little bit about your work as a prison chaplain. People might be more familiar with hospital chaplains and what they see hospital chaplains do, but what, what is the role of a prison chaplain? Okay. Well, uh, to be clear, this was a, f a role that I was in for uh, almost four years from 2008 to 2012. And um, my experience as a prison chaplain in that role was limited to where I was. So I think the answer to that question depends on where one is. Being a prison chaplain where I was at the, for the Correctional Service of Canada, the Pacific region, which covered all the federal prisons in British Columbia, mostly on the no lower mainland, was different than it is for some of my colleagues who are chaplains on death row in Texas mm -hmm. or elsewhere. Um, but the, the charge that I had as a prison chaplain working for Her Majesty's government at the <laughs> time was to uh, provide spiritual support for anyone requesting the services of a Jewish chaplain. And so mostly that, were, that was people who were Jewish by, by birth or uh, by conversion, um, but it also was people who were not Jewish and who were interested in learning uh, and finding some, some comfort and solace from the Jewish tradition as they grappled with um, the usual themes that came up were about teshuva, repentance, and about um, uh, how to move forward um, in, in the wake of, of having committed crimes and have, how to find a community connection. <clears throat> right. So you founded Lachaim. I'm wondering if you could talk about like when did that happen? How did that come about? And and I guess we could start with what is Lachaim? 
Sure. Well, the word l'chaim means to life, and it's usually used uh, in the Jewish tradition as a toast. People who've seen Fiddler on the Roof would know the song, to life, l'chaim, and that is a traditional uh, uh, toast in Jewish circles. Um, at, uh, at celebrations, it's uh, what you might hear at a wedding or a bar or bat mitzvah ceremony. And literally, it means to life. And we felt that that word encapsulated our position. We felt the need to create a group of the many, many uh, people in the Jewish world who oppose capital punishment. And we felt that our name should be L'chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty. Let somebody else start another group if they want to. Lamavet would be to death. Um, we're not going to, that's not our position. Um, I, the answer to your question of how I got involved in death penalty abolition is, uh, well, I was a prison chaplain. And when I moved back to the States, uh, cases like Troy Davis, uh, who uh, I believe was wrongfully convicted, wrongfully executed, and others that I got to know continue to tug at my heartstrings. Um, and then uh, I also got to become more and more familiar with cases of people who acknowledge their guilt. And I juxtaposed that with my experience of people in British Columbia who I had met in, in Vancouver and, and the Lower Mainland who had committed crimes, who in certain jurisdictions in the States would have been eligible for those crimes for the death penalty. And I saw that how the, there was a capacity for those individuals to change who they were and to, uh, to become uh, individuals who could repent and repair, to use language from Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg's new book on repentance and repair, and who could work in the um, arena of restorative justice to give back to the world in a way. That, as well as personal experiences with friends and family in, in prisons in, in the States, and as well as my employment for the U.S. federal government, led me to take quite personally the uh, federal execution spree, which is mm -hmm. as how we call it, uh, that took place under the previous administration. Uh, there were 13 individuals killed by the federal government between 2020 and 2021, 12 men and one woman. I am a federal employee, and I saw this as my, my employer taking these lives. Now, I work for a different department of the, of the government, but um, I am a federal chaplain, and I felt that this was no longer something in another state or something that was divorced from me. And so I started reaching out to individuals in, via letter and via email, connected with them, people who identified with Jewish practices even, some of them. The first person I corresponded with, um, who uh, uh, was Christian but took a great deal from Jewish practices and uh, would respond to me with Hebrew, uh, was executed. And three of them were executed, three of my pen pals there. And in the wake of that, I connected with other Jewish abolitionists and the greater abolitionist community and we saw fit to mobilize the Jewish world against this horror and to realize how many icons, contemporary icons, Jewish icons as well, are have been ardent and staunch abolitionists. I could go on and on, but I want I know our time is limited, but that's that was the creation of Lachaim. The intention was to gather people who shared our view that the death penalty, that as Elie Wiesel said, death is not the answer. Mm -hmm. And so, what kind of mobilization does Lachaim do? Like, how how does it perform its advocacy? What is its uh, what is its mandate? Okay. Well, we are we are still evolving. Um, uh, this is um, you know, I, I want to be very clear. There have been a wealth a wealth of Jewish abolitionists mm -hmm. well before I came along, before I was born, um, and. Uh, uh, so, so there have been Jewish organizations that have committed to this cause. I don't know of any others that are sort of singular with this focus. Um, so, uh, but when we, when we started, our goals were um, really threefold. 
The first was to gather, as I indicated, people under this banner to identify who in the Jewish world wants to be against the death penalty and is against the death penalty. So that's one. And we continue to gain members every day, as can happen on social media. And, uh, we've gotten over well over 2,100 members now and um, continue to grow almost daily. So there's that. The second is uh, continuing the, the role of pen palling and communicating with individuals on death rows across the country, Jewish and non-Jewish. At first, we gathered all the names of people who identified as Jewish and reached out to them, and then we expanded, particularly with the intention of reaching out to anyone who got an active execution warrant and just letting them know, making them aware that amongst the many groups in civilized humanity who stands with them is our group and this is why and this is the this this is our history the third prong is um, daily advocacy in terms of calling and letter writing and petition signing so we make daily calls to every political leader governor um, currently no it's not the president because there's no active execution federal execution warrants though the federal government is still seeking the death penalty in some cases. But there are a wealth, dozens of individuals currently with execution warrants. Right now, as of this writing today, it's in Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and as of yesterday, Florida. Um, and so we make daily calls, phone calls to those governors, just respectfully note, noting our position and why and that we are against it and also signing execution petitions and uh, spreading those awareness of those petitions across the Jewish world as best we can. Write a lot of op-eds to programs like, like this one to increase awareness. What would you say were some of the, well, maybe before I ask it, like have you felt like there have been some successes? Yes, uh, absolutely. Since um, any success, uh, from the main I guess what, success. what the success look like would be a, <laughs> yeah, a yeah. question. So, so that's a great question. Uh, the first success for a group called L'chaim is life. So when uh, a death sentence is quashed, when there's a clemency, when there's an overturning, um, that is a moment of intense celebration. The moments that come to mind over the past three years since I've been involved in this were um, uh, Melissa Lucio in Texas who I believe, uh, many believe, is wrongfully convicted and uh, just days before her sentence was intended to be carried out, was um, uh, it was called off so that it can be re-evaluated. Re Another is our, is our friend Ramiro, uh, who, as you know uh, far better than I, uh, was so close and, um, uh, you know, whatever reason can, can lead to, um, to the saving of life. We celebrate that. That is, without question, the greatest, mm -hmm. <laughs> the greatest victory. Um, there are others as well. I mean, tragically, I can, I hate to say it, but tragically, there are other pen pals, two who come to mind in Alabama, who who, who were not killed because the warrant expired at midnight, and they they were taken off the the table at midnight because. They couldn't get the vein. They, the torture ended because they ran out. Alabama's trying to stop that from happening so that they can go beyond midnight. But regardless, that was an opportunity. Their lives were saved. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the saving of life. Secondly, there's abolition. Uh, since we began, I, I don't take any credit for this at all, but since we began, we've witnessed the abolition of the death penalty in Virginia, the first southern state to abolish the death penalty. And that was huge, that was huge. Um, and that pe folks in that state had been doggedly working at that for, for, for a long time. So that is reason for, for a celebration. And we followed this globally. Though we're only in touch with um, uh, people on death rows in the states, we keep up with news. I guess I should say that's another prong of what we do at Laheim is keep people informed. Mm -hmm. So constantly aware of what's going on in different countries across the world. 70% of nations have abolished the death penalty, but there are still 30% that have them. And so 
just since we've started, we've seen abolition in, uh, I think, at least three third world countries. And we celebrated that. Zambia comes to mind. Uh, there are two other uh, sub-Saharan uh, countries in Africa. I don't know if they were sub-Saharan, I shouldn't say that, but across Africa. And, um, and so that's a great victory. Um, and then smaller victories, um, like uh, certain states making it more difficult to, uh, to carry out uh, capital punishment. And then other victories, like recently we saw in, um, in Oregon, where the governor commuted all the remaining death sentences in that state. So those lives were saved. Mm -hmm. Or in Arizona now, where there's a pause on executions um, for uh, foreseeable future while, the, while that protocol is evaluated based on Governor Hobbs' declaration that it needed to be looked into so that it was done with the highest level of scrutiny. But at the same time, those victories, and this may be another question that you have, but those victories are, are always tempered by constant um, two steps back, you know, one step back, two steps forward. And I could give you countless examples of that as well. Mm-hmm. Is there one that sticks out for you specifically? Of the, of the stepping back? Yeah. Well, the, the, I think right now, um, the, fresh, the freshest example is what's, what happened most recently. So I indicated uh, a few minutes ago that Florida, um, uh, the governor, Governor DeSantis signed a death warrant in Florida um, for uh, Donald Dilbeck. And we, uh, we've sent him a message of support, as we usually do. Uh, don't, we haven't heard back yet. We may or may not. But um, uh, this is the first execution warrant that Governor DeSantis has signed. This is now his second term. He didn't sign any in his first term. And it comes on the... So, so that, is, that is awful, right? This is... It, it, the past... Since I've started this work, we haven't had to, quote-unquote, worry as immediately about Florida. But this can open the floodgates in that state particularly if he has political aspirations, which many believe he does. Mm-hmm. Add to that what he did just one day before in Florida, which was to say that he wanted legislation that would uh, make possible the death penalty in cases where there was not a unanimous jury, but simply a majority. And that came on the heels of, of the awful shooting in that state uh, where the, uh, the offender did not get the death penalty because there was one juror who didn't want it. But that opens more floodgates to wrongful convictions, um, just const- a, a Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it appears that there now may be bipartisan support in that state to get that legislation passed, which would be a nightmare. Yeah, that's... I can imagine sometimes for folks in Canada who listen to this podcast, and we have people in Canada and the U.S. and Britain who who listen, but for um, those who do not live in a country where uh, the government is executing its citizens, it feels, at least to me, like a sort of where I mean, before I got involved in this in this work, kind of a foreign, I mean, literally, because it's happening in a foreign country, but it, it, it can be hard sometimes to reconcile that this is a power that the government chooses to, um, mm-hmm. chooses to maintain. You're absolutely right, Brianna. And I must say, you know, by the last couple of years when I was in Canada, um, and I would go back after I moved back to the States. My wife is a, a dual citizen and family there. <laughs> I feel like kissing the ground whenever I go there. Now, I know Canada's not perfect. I, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is, it's, for me, it, there's a, there's a real, the feeling is different. Mm-hmm. You know, the feeling, and, I, and I'm an American. I was born, raised in New England. There are many things about America that I love. And this is one that is just anathema to every value that that I grew up with, and ties into the cultural ideas of of people like Elie Wiesel, who realized in the wake of the Holocaust that giving the government the power to kill those that it incarcerates cannot cannot stand. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's that's something that we continue to try to 
make into something foreign because it should be foreign mm -hmm. as it is for you and for others elsewhere. And yet we sort of see in in polls over and over again that despite the fact capital punishment is not available within our criminal code, almost just as many people in Canada as in the United States are supportive of the idea of the death penalty being available for certain crimes. And so the, the worry sometimes is that all we need is a certain government uh, with a certain mandate that, you know, it's yep. laws change. And, and, we, and we saw that in Canada with the attempts to bring the death penalty back in the late 80s. There was a whole campaign to reinstate it by the Mulroney government um, that was put to a free vote and it was, it was defeated, but not after an immense amount of campaigning, much of it led by faith leaders. Oh, I, I, I didn't know that, and uh, but it, it, I, it, I'm not surprised. You know, we, we, and I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I should say we have a great responsibility. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to matters of life and death, I mean, this is directly as it, you know, it should be in the wheelhouse of any spiritual leader, any ethicist, any leader of human values, of however we define that, from from humanist mm -hmm. to uh, fundamental. This is a question that needs to be tackled. And what what gets to me just as much as anything else is when I hear from my own colleagues in the Jewish community and other religious communities, I hear them say, oh, no, we can't touch that issue. It's too political. It's dangerous. Let's do something else. That is the same type of hand washing uh, and silence that uh, countless leaders, moral leaders from from, from Martin Luther King to Ellie Wiesel have, have told us is a recipe for disaster. And, um, and so when you'd say about Canada's history and how it's, it's not, a, you know, it could, a change of government could change things. Yes, look at Israel now. I don't know if you've seen, but um, this current government in Israel is, uh, is very much um, uh, uh, trying in, in many ways to, to, to change the lay of the land uh, is very conservative in, in the um, coalition that it's built and one of its principles is the hope to bring back the use of the death penalty. Now technically the death penalty is on the books in Israel. It's only been used twice in its history. One for Adolf Eichmann, the, uh, the Nazi who who I must say, for whom I must say, there was ample, ample um, uh, reaction from the Jewish world, including from the likes of Martin Buber, mm -hmm. who wrote to the government to say this should not be done. Uh, so his was the one execution, and there was one other execution of somebody in the Israeli army who was subsequently exonerated after his execution, mm. found that he was wrongly convicted. But now the, is this new government, to answer your question, mm -hmm. is hoping to bring it back for quote-unquote terrorists. And there's a lot of support. We wrote an open letter to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu from our group stating very unequivocally our position on this matter. Um, and uh, it, it, um, I know in, in, in the UK, now and then, it also comes up mm -hmm. depending on who's in government. Yeah. So, you're right. Yeah. So you mentioned Romero, and in a, an upcoming episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about Romero Gonzalez and, and how I came to meet him and become, which was sort of my gateway, my entry into being more involved in the abolitionist movement. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you came to meet Romero. Certainly, I'd be happy to. Well, um, it was that initial letter that I, like I said, we send out, I send out a letter to anybody who gets an execution date. Ramiro had received previous execution dates, but it was before the creation of L'Chaim, so I hadn't reached out to him with that. But when he got his, um, not his most recent one, but the previous one a couple years ago, um, I, uh, I sent him a letter saying who I was, who we were, talking about the, the Nazi legacy of lethal injection itself, 
uh, and why our group was opposed to it and offering um, just general terms of spiritual support and um, letting him know that, that in it, as I said, in addition to many out there, count us among those who are advocating for him. Not everybody responded to my letters. This was before uh, Texas had the email capability mm -hmm. that they have now. So you had to write, as you know, you had to write a letter um, and then or you, you could email them a letter, but they couldn't email back. They had to send an email back, uh, send a letter back to you. So I emailed him and he wrote me back a letter. Uh, he was the first one in Texas to ever write me back and started a copious correspondence um, and um, about, it became very clear from one of his earliest letters how much, as you know very well, how important his faith is for him. And uh, I, I had, even at that point, had already started communicating with other people um, over email and had a sense that amongst those that I was communicating with, this was someone for whom it was clear faith was right at the top. And um, I was struck by his openness uh, with someone who he didn't know, right? I mean, I, he just, just threw letters. His openness, his interest in learning about what about Judaism, not not for the sake of, of conversion, but for the sake of just understanding uh, and 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 having a brother, as it were, in faith to be able to talk about these things, and specifically as it related to ideas about repentance. And he would ask about what what does Judaism have to say about that, and I would share some some of my thoughts and my experiences. And um, uh, that grew into um, uh, greater correspondence about my work uh, as a hospital chaplain, about his past, about um, his life, and about his hopes of making restoration. You know, of, of we talked about the Jewish word for repentance. The Hebrew word often is teshuva, which means um, like a returning. And how do you give back? How do you restore, which ties into restorative justice. And so, you know, as I told him about my work um, uh, and I, about my life and about this, uh, you know, my role as a hospital chaplain and my community, and I shared with him that there was somebody in our community who has been looking for a, a kidney donor and um, was, uh, had, had not had success. You know, I'd shared it on social media, just wasn't working. Um, it's very hard to get to get somebody to, to step up to do that. Well, Ramiro, um, he jumped on it and he said, you know, is there a way that I could, could do this? And he was very clear that this is not something that um, he expected would, was going to save him from, you know, at this time he had it, he had an execution date over his head that was going to save him from that, but it's just something he wanted to do to help give back life. Um, for the life that he had taken, knowing that uh, certainly um, uh, he could not give that, get that life back, but he could do this. And this was something that he really felt from a spiritual place. He, he, it, it meant a great deal for him to be able to do this. And, um, and sure enough, I, I um, connected, I, I mentioned this to the member of our, my home congregation, and there was an interest in trying, and we, we gave it a, an honest try. We tr connected the legal teams. In the end, it didn't end up working for, for specific uh, reasons that prevented it from happening, but it didn't stop Ramiro from still having this urge of wanting to do this before his life was taken. And, um, and so he, he continued to pursue it with his legal team, and he was able to find other avenues to, uh, to try to make that happen. And um, I, I've supported it from day one. And and when he got, if I'm getting the timeline right, so he got a stay of execution. This was not the most mm -hmm. recent one, but the previous one. And one of his first responses when that happened in his letter to me was, "Now I I pray I'll be able to to do this. You know, I'll have the time. Um, there won't be any reason for me not to be able to do this." It was still, and that was a big a big source of. Our correspondence was talking about this and just updating me on it, and um, and I hoped so. I, I, I thought it would be uh, 
it would be wonderful, you know, how, how, how much of a blessing would that be? Unfortunately, as we know, um, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice um, did not, um, uh, uh, was not complying and not making it easy and not, not signing off on his ability to do that at the time. And um, for that reason, you know, he, he wanted to um, make the folk public aware of, of what was going on. Now, I should specify up to that point, I hadn't told anyone about this. You know, this was a, a private matter. Um, he didn't want people to know this was something between him and his God. And, you know, this was his spiritual life. And it was not made public. But when, when the Texas Department of Criminal Justice denied him, then he wanted it to be made public, and and so we did. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then there was a groundswell of support, um, unintended, but to to show that this human being is not the monster that many will immediately assume him to be, and will define him based on the, the worst things that he has done, um, and. Uh, and, and I think it helped to um, move the conversation on and force others to, to realize that this was not an attempt to evade execution. This was something sincere. And how do we deal with that? Mm -hmm. How do we deal with the fact that this person is not a monster? Do we, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I was very, very grateful for your advocacy and your companionship with Romero through that time, because, uh, as publicly, particularly, because I mean, I was not able to be public at that time. It's a bit different now. Everything's kind of um, more open. So, I mean, I was just so grateful that you were able to talk to the papers and explain to people that Romero was sincere and that this wasn't a, a tactic to, to delay anything, that, that this had been in the works for a long, long time. Yes. And I, I, I sent all the correspondence to the legal team so mm -hmm. that they could see the proof that that was the case. You know, Ramiro made it easy because there was nothing, nothing to hide. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I would hope that I wouldn't hide anything anyway, mm -hmm. but, but this was all just the truth. And, um, it was, I'm very ready and, and, uh, was happy to share that truth. It's time for Bible Bites. Normally for our Bible Bites segment, I ask folks from across the country to read scripture in their real-world contexts for the podcast. However, I have chosen to read this week's passage for a reason that will become apparent in just a moment. There was some discussion about which expression of Holy Scripture I would read from before discussing Exodus and the final three plagues with Michael. And after some discernment, I've chosen to read the lead-up to the final plague from the new revised Standard Version Updated Edition. You will hear Michael read segments of the story from the Torah and Hebrew during our discussion. This decision, for me, came out of a desire to balance both respect and authenticity during an interfaith conversation. Hello, this is Reverend Brienne, and I am standing within sight of the Dawn Jail in Toronto, which is the location of the final executions ever carried out in Canada. And I'm reading from the 11th chapter of Exodus in the new Revised Standard Version updated edition, the warning of the final plague. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor and every woman is to ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. 
The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials, and in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as has never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Leave us, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And in hot anger, he left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you in order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. So Exodus. (laughs) So Exodus. So you you chose the story of the final the stories of the final three plagues from the book of Exodus. And I'm wondering what is significant for you in those stories in this conversation about the capital punishment and the hopeful abolition of the death penalty? Well, uh, I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, divine synchronicities, yes. As you indicated at the start, we've been trying to have this conversation for a long time now, many cancellations for, for various reasons, and here we are now. In the Jewish world, this week is the week we read of the final three plagues. So we read a portion of, of the Torah every week um, that, for the full year. Um, this season we're in Exodus, and this portion, Parsha, is Bo. Uh, the, uh, that's the Torah portion. So that goes from Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 13, verse 16. And it so happens that um, a few weeks ago, uh, someone, a Jewish organization, had asked me to write a Devar Torah, meaning a word of Torah, um, which is sort of like a sermon, on this Torah portion ahead of time. And I, I did. And uh, uh, I, I wrote about um, how, as a death penalty abolitionist, this directly speaks to me, without knowing that um, we would be talking this week, while this is the Torah the, the portion that Jews across the world are studying um, intentionally. So there's that. There's the, the timeline. The other reason I had had uh, the, the reason I had had suggested this text though if to you was not because I thought we would be sitting here on this week that we're actually studying it but because of how much it resonated with me as someone who with our group makes those daily calls to political leaders asking for demanding pleading for the lives of our pen pals Um, because as we well know throughout this, the Exodus narrative, Moses and Aaron do just that uh, after many of the plagues, and this week they do so after the final three plagues, and they're met consistently with the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. Um, and uh, it, it, the very start of the Torah portion this week, the very first line, uh, uh, we read, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, Bo el paro, kiani hichbariti et libo liet lev avadav lemaan shiti ototai ele bekirbo. Then Adonai said to Moses, quote, "Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the hearts of his courtiers, in order that I may dispel these my signs among them." And just about ten times uh, th- throughout uh, throughout our parsha. 
well, four separate occasions throughout our Parsha, I should say, throughout our portion, we read about this hardening of the heart. That is, I can't think of a better metaphor for what we, myself as well, experience with these daily phone calls. I've never once talked to a governor. It's usually somebody who's very friendly, you know, in their staff. I'll make my statement or I'll leave a message saying um, with our script of pleading, begging for the lives of those in line for execution. And we're often met with silence. Silence and a lack of a lack of compassion. A lack of, you know, the, the heart remains hard. It, it, it does not soften. And so I don't claim to be Moshe Rabbeinu, which means our, our teacher Moses. I am far from it. I am an imperfect human being. But in this way, I feel like I can relate to him. And um, uh, I felt a direct comparison between our advocacy work to political leaders. As you said as well, as a faith community, as faith leaders, that this is something we must do. And it's a, it's a, it's a narrative as old as time that's been repeating and repeating. And we see it in here in one of our oldest biblical stories. And I feel like I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> and eventually, the Israelites got out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And this is our Egypt. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the tale that is as old as time is, you know, going and, and speaking up and fighting the oppression. And and yet always the hope in it, you know, so even in the, uh, you know, Pharaoh is saying no and his heart is getting hardened, but there's still, al there's still always the hope, you know, the Israelites are out of Egypt, different states are, are moving towards abolition for, and for different reasons, not even always the same, the same reasons and stuff, so. Yes, yes, and I, I, I think that's, I'm glad you raised that because it and it ties into a, a question you asked earlier as well. Sort of what keeps you going? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because yes, I mean, there's no doubt there, there are there are many steps backwards sometimes, but each step forward is something to hold on to, and and they happen, and um, and the success stories as I see them, you know, I know that we can, you know, in, in terms of Ramiro. There's a lot of factors at play, but I, I do believe that all of this, all of the groundswell of support, you know, did not hurt. Mm -hmm. And and um, I think in every case, like when 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 there's you save one life, you can save a universe. You know, that's one of the the phrases that um, from my tradition that that inspires me. The Talmud in uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin, the Oral Law says, whoever destroys a life, it is considered as if he destroyed an entire world. And whoever saves a life, it is considered as if he saved an entire world. And so any one life, Ramiro, Melissa Lucio, and others, makes it all worthwhile. And um, that hope um, gives us reason to, to continue. And if I may add um, uh, another parallel, right? to these last three plagues is a figure who makes uh, his um, makes entry here, which is Malach Hamavet, the angel of death. And um, this is a figure that um, we in L'chaim often compare with the force of the of this of this desire to kill. You know, we we call it the cycle. The cycle of violence, we call it the cycle of killing, it, that perpetuates. And the metaphor of this angel of death is one that resonates. And Ellie Wiesel knew it very well. And um, one of our anthems is a quote that he uh, made famously about the death penalty. And I'd like to share that here because it also refers to this angel of death that we see with the final plague in Egypt. Quote, with every cell of my being, and with every fiber of my memory. I oppose the death penalty in all forms. I do not believe any society, any civilized society, should be at the service of death. I don't think it's human to become an agent of the angel of death." End quote. 
So whenever I see and read about the angel of death, whether it's this time of year in this portion or at the story of Passover when we read it again, this is what comes to mm -hmm. mind. You know, our goal is that that angel of death will pass over this land and our world. So I will link in the show notes the Devar Torah that you have offered so others can read it as well. Okay. I will link that up. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you are sitting here going, ah, oh, I really want to say this. I really want people to know this. <clears throat> well, there is, there is one thing, which I know I've, I've said ad nauseum in other, other contexts, but I haven't said it yep. here. So um, I, I think it's important. A, a lot of people simply are not aware of this, this fact, which really is also a driver for what we do. And, um, uh, uh, it's part of the introductory letters that I make to any pen pal. It's part of the voicemails that I leave for the governors. So I think it's important to note is the reminder that we are here to make that the first time lethal injection ever was used in our world was by the Nazis as part of Achtung T4. That was their protocol to kill people deemed unworthy of life. It was devised by Dr. Carl Brandt who was the personal physician of Adolf Hitler. I emphasize that for two reasons. One, it's a fact that I did not know for a long time. And, and obviously lethal injection is the most common form of, of, the, um, of capital punishment used in the States. But it's just something that I've encountered people denying and just not, it's, it's like a fact that you don't wanna, you don't wanna face. And it's, it's important that we face that fact you know, whether that's okay with somebody, it may very well be. I mean, I've shared that fact with some people and they've said, oh, well, that's okay. The Nazis gave us a lot of other things too. But at a time when people like Kanye West are saying um, what the Nazis gave to our world, we cannot forget that this is one of them. And um, we are here to be a reminder of that fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly not, you know, the history of lethal injection that gets talked about. Yes, in uh, and, and let me circles. be very clear. Yeah, it, it, it existed in theory yeah. before that. But the first time it was actually, actually put into practice, mm -hmm. put implemented, was by, was by the Nazis. Yeah. And right down the street from where I live in College Park, Maryland, is the National Archives. And they have the letter there that Hitler signed for the Achtung T4 for this lethal injection to actually occur. It's down the street from where I live. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being here and for everything you do um, with Lahayim, with the people you work with. Um, I am very grateful for you and feel blessed to have been able to speak with you today. Well, thank you so much, Brianne, on behalf of uh, everyone in our organization and um, uh, as well um, being uh, the spiritual advisor as you are for Ramiro, my good friend. It's an honor to know you and to be able to, to serve alongside you here.
I wrote this song, Let Healing Swiftly Come, exactly ten years ago. This is a live recording, and not a great live recording either, from a worship service at Metropolitan United Church in 2017. It is based on Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 8, which is a passage so important to me and my family that we named our first child Isaiah and have these words framed above his bed. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. This was one of the scheduled readings in the Revised Common Lectionary for this past Sunday. As I was putting together our episode today, I was brought back to how much I truly believe that our own healing and wholeness is completely tied to the fates of those the world has often turned its back on. This will be a theme in upcoming episodes, how much the continued use of capital punishment continues to be relevant to anybody who wishes for the healing of the world. Wilderness Times and Resistance Church are part of the digital ministry of Jubilee United Church. We are committed to continuing offering opportunities for spiritual engagement in digital spaces in the long term, but we need your help. Please consider a donation as an investment in this ministry. You can find our donations page by going to wildernesstimes.ca donate. From there, you can choose Wilderness Times from the drop-down menu. Whether you donate once or sign up for a monthly contribution, we are very, very grateful for your support. for being with us here and sharing in this episode. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you are listening from. It really helps us get the word out about the show. We will be back in two weeks with another episode delving into capital punishment and those seeking its abolition. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other in these wilderness times. We'll see you soon. Wilderness Times and Resistance Church are ministries of Jubilee United Church, which is an affirming ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find links to Jubilee, Resistance Church, as well as a full transcript of this episode by going to our show notes at wildernesstimes.ca.